Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 2.19, part 2 of an addendum to Hebrews 7.1, which is between Hebrews 7 and 7.8, and and chapter 8 also in our exegesis. Most High God and the universal priesthood of Jesus. And essential, I think, for more than one reason on the level of our own time. Perhaps you've forgotten Isaiah 26.20, which speaks of wrath. And wrath is not merely God's anger apart from love, but an expression of God's love to awaken the sleepy and to shake and awake the so-called woke. The wrath of God is not COVID, although the COVID has been a part of the warning wrath of God and we are in our closets not in terms of a lockdown but in terms of the fact that our life wherever it partakes and wherever it goes in our freedom or our limited freedom is a prayer closet in which we are making petition standing in the gap between God and our nation and there is a heightened highly elevated contest now in the spiritual realms between darkness and light, life and death, and we should be aware of this. I hope you haven't forgotten it. I think some have, and some haven't. But Father, we thank you that you are in every way active according to your redeeming grace in Christ Jesus. And it's greatly stabilizing to our souls to know that Jesus has tasted death for all and that he is presently crowned with glory and honor. And we see him as such the eyes of our heart. And though we don't see all all things under his feet, in fact... All things are under his feet in the sense that the human situation has radically altered in him. But oh, how we await the radical alteration of the human condition. We also make petition for our nation, Father, for the things that are occurring in our nation right now ought to be taken extremely seriously by those who know you. And that the fate of this nation is in the balances now. We pray that your people who are called by your name would indeed act in active, efficacious intercession for the restoration of this nation. And may the restoration of this nation mean the evangelization of the nations. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Notably, elsewhere in the Holy Scriptures, they're called Holy Scriptures, incidentally, in Romans 1-2 and 2 Timothy 3-15, God is called the Most High by the angel who announced Jesus' birth. This angel, whose name was Gabriel, said to Mary, Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive 
and give birth to a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Huios Hupsistu. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Quite a birth announcement. Luke 130b through 33. In addition, the angel Gabriel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, Luke 135. The Son of the Most High, Luke 132, is the Son of God, Luke 135. The Son of God, he is our great archpriest, <laughs> Jesus, the Son of God, who has passed through the heavens and who is now seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. <clears throat> He's exalted there because in his sufferings and by his death, Jesus achieved the purification of sins, says Hebrews 1.3, of the sins of the whole world, says 1 John 2.2. 2. <clears throat> Therefore, the Most High God whom he represents, has salvific dominion over the whole world of human beings and the whole universe of proportionate being, both visible and invisible. And he has given this universal authority to Jesus, according to Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Again in Luke, a decisively universalistic telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Luke, a decisively universalistic telling of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Zechariah's prophecy to his son, John the baptizer, includes the following prophetic oracle. Consider it. Luke 1, 76 to 79. And child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Those who live in darkness implies that the light of Christ will shine on the so-called heathen in the outer darkness as well as upon Israel. Indeed, God who said light shine in darkness in Genesis 1-3 will shine into the hearts of all human beings to fill them with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians Four, six. In this light dawns on the heavens and the earth, and as it does, 
It shines on all men and women and children. Incidentally, this way of peace that Luke 179 mentions is the king's highway. My prayer is that even in our own time and generation, millions, no, I pray that billions will awake, even the woke, and arise from the death of ignorance and unbelief so that Christ shines on them, Ephesians 5.14, and that he will allow us in our time to see more light in his light, Psalm 36.9b, Septuagint 35.10b, and to walk in the light and not be overcome by the darkness of demonic disinformation which is being proliferated today on many levels and through many outlets. Not as unwise people, but as wise. John 12, 35, conflated with Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. A people not as unarmed, but as fully spiritually armed and prepared. Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Not as faint-hearted, but prayerful in Luke 18.1. In the power and strength of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 6.18, Jude 1.20b. Though our life moves in a rather wide sphere of freedom and activity, let our lives be a prayer closet. Still again in Luke, Jesus says this, and I love this verse for many, many reasons. Listen to it carefully. Jesus says this, still again in Luke. But love your enemies. Do what is good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. Do you realize how stunning that statement is if that was just said to you out of context and out of the blue? And it is a con- in a wonderful context. The Most High is gracious to the ungrateful and evil. I'd have to say to the Calvinists, even the reprobates. The Most High is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil. This is the most astonishing declaration of the unlimited grace, the unrestricted love, and the universally dispensed mercy of God, saving mercy of God. He is gracious to those whom Calvin called the elect, and to those whom this reformer called the reprobate. God's being gracious means not only that he blesses the ungrateful and evil with what we would call well-being in time, but that he saves them and saves them completely, giving them eternal well-being and life. The Most High God has reconciled them to himself in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Who needs reconciliation if not enemies? 
The final subordination of all the enemies of God and of Christ will be the willing submission of those who were once enemies who have become reconciled to God, whom he now calls friends, John 15, 15. The Most High God is gracious to the ungrateful and the evil because he saved them by grace through the faithful obedience of his Son, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, Jesus, our great archpriest who passed through the heavens having obtained eternal redemption by his own blood and not by the blood of Others, like animals, sacrifices. Hebrews 9, 12 to 14. Hebrews 9, 25 to 26. Hebrews 10, 4, 10, 19, 13, 11 to 12. The situation of the ungrateful and the evil, even though they remain such as we view them, has been radically altered by the blood of Christ's cross. How? Let's consider a slightly expanded translation of Romans 5, 6 through 11. I'll read it carefully, slowly. It's my own translation with a few expansions. For while we were terminally and incurably ill. See Micah 1, 9 and Nahum, Nahum 3, 19. Christ died just in time. That refers to the crisis of the ages or the crux of the ages, which is found in Hebrews 9.26. On behalf of the ungodly, Christ died on behalf of or for the benefit of the ungodly. Is the Most High gracious to the ungrateful and the evil or what? While we were terminally and incurably ill, this is ir we were irredeemable by any other means than this. While we, that's the whole of the human kind, humankind, while we were terminally and incurably ill, Christ died just in time on behalf of the ungodly. So we could say his death was the cure of the incurable wound and the remedy for the irredeemable irremediable situation and condition of all human beings in Adam. Verse 7, now with difficulty you can cite examples of someone dying for an innocent person. And for a benevolent person, some may also be brave enough to die, but God, in verse 8 of Second Corinthians, of Romans 5, Romans 5, 8, but God showcased his love for us in that while we were still enslaved by and colluding with sin, Christ died for us on behalf of us and in our place, enduring with God and as God and man, the ultimate harvest of sin. That was his experience. He experienced and was brought to the place where sin would have brought us all finally and everlastingly to an incomprehensible death. Verse 9, much more than since, the, since we have now been justified by his blood, 
we will be saved from wrath through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his son's death. Then much more, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? That is, by sharing his own life, a participation in his own resurrection. Life-giving justification, Romans 5.18. Not only that, says verse 11, but we also rejoice triumphantly in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This reconciliation is in short, and by definition, the permanent alteration of the human situation. Reconciliation, all caps in your mind, is the name of the alteration of the human situation, which we see by faith. Resurrection is the name of the alteration of the human condition, which we await in hope. I'm going to say those two things again. Reconciliation is the name of the alteration of the human situation, which we see by faith. Resurrection is the name of the alteration of the human condition, which we await in hope. We who have received the reconciliation, that is, acknowledged it as having happened for us and for all, we urge others to receive this reconciliation, which simply means to acknowledge themselves as the beneficiaries of it, for they are that. This is what it means when Paul says we meaning those of us who have received the reconciliation and have acknowledged it, urge you, those who have not yet acknowledged it, be reconciled with God. That is, acknowledge that you have been reconciled with God in Christ and that your situation has been forever altered as has ours. That's the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5.20. So note the interchangeability of Jesus' blood and Jesus' death. Blood and death in Romans 5, 9 and 5, 10. And in the same chapter, 5 of Romans, note also the interchangeability of many with all. Romans 5, 18 and 19. As beneficiaries of that blood, i.e. that death. I'm going to pick on Calvin a little bit more in this series, or this two-part addendum. Calvin did not, indeed, nor his students, indeed could not conceive of the universal significance of Jesus Christ and that he exists as the single inclusive representative of all human beings because he, and probably more so his students or his adherents, 
are evidently fully committed to and evidently enslaved by an appallingly restricted conception of election, reprobation, and double predestination. Faith perceives God's love to be unrestricted. I'll say that again. Faith perceives God's love to be unrestricted. A faith that does not perceive God's love as unrestricted does not perceive God's love and is arguably not so much faith. Calvin rationalized, as do his followers, modern and ancient, that reprobation and the predestination of the non-elect to eternal perdition somehow serves the glory of God. (laughs) There was ever a moment when one was tempted to say, bullshit. Now is that moment. Thankfully, I've not caved into that temptation. Calvin and others, perhaps more others than Calvin, only saw Christ saving significance for particular human beings. But even those particular human beings are, if you think about it, never accorded personal assurance of their final salvation because of the notion of the perseverance of the saints, as it's called, the P in tulip. It says, now, if you're truly elect, then you'll persevere in faith until the end and be saved. It is not that faith only perceives, in opposition to Calvin, the universal significance of Jesus, and not any particular significance. In other words, I'm not saying that true faith perceives only the universal significance of Jesus and not his particular saving significance. I'm not saying that. So it's not that faith only perceives, in opposition to Calvin, the universal significance of Jesus, but not any particular significance. No, faith understands both Jesus' universal saving significance, his saving significance to all human beings, and his particular saving significance to each and every human being. In fact, the two divine missions testify to this. Bernard Lonergan, again, in his triune God, Systematics, wrote the following. Although each mission has the same ultimate end, which is the heavenly city for the glory of the Father, there's our Uranopolis, the first mission is that of God the Son for the reconciliation of all human persons to God the Father. And the consequent mission of the Spirit is to each one of the just who have been reconciled. So the first divine mission, that of the Son, resulted in the reconciliation of all human persons to God the Father. That's true from 2 Corinthians 5.19. The consequent divine mission, that of the Spirit, is to each of the just. The second divine mission is not only that of the Spirit, however. It is also the extension 
of the mission of the Son to each of those whom God has reconciled. In this time in between that we're calling it, in between the alteration of the universal human situation and the alteration of the universal human condition by bodily resurrection. In this time in between, some, but not all, human beings are being awakened so that Christ shines on them with salvific light. Ephesians 5.14, Isaiah 60, verse 1. So that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines into the darkness of their or our hearts. 2 Corinthians 4.6. In his second appearance, all of humanity and all of creation have that light enlighten them and God's life enliven them forever. Jesus has universal saving significance and, I can testify to this, particular saving significance. Not just particular and not only universal. Not just particular, as many Calvinists would say, and not just universal, as some universalists would say. So perhaps now is when I should say to you that there is, in fact, a double predestination in the Holy Scriptures. And here it is. Jesus received the predestination of the reprobate to perdition and the predestination of the elect to glory in the death of the cross. Philippians 2.8, which he endured, Hebrews 12.2, and in his bodily resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right side on his Father's very throne, a subject coming up very soon in future increments. We're not done. We're not done in this two-part addendum. I told you I've been meditating on it for some time. Little did Mary know when the angel prophesied that her son would be called the son of the Most High, that he would be called that by demons. In one case, by the representative of a legion of demons who had taken up squatter's residence, we might call it, in a single man. The demon-possessed man of the Gerasenes, who lived in the burial caves, when he saw Jesus, cried out, fell down before him, and said in a loud voice, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, you son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torment me. Luke eight twenty eight. It's to our great relief, as we read on, and certainly this man's great relief, that he was delivered by Jesus from this horrible state and condition, and that in Luke 8.35, we see him, quote, sitting, dressed, and in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. This is the work of the Most High God in his Son, a work of incomprehensible mercy, of omnipotent grace, 
of unfathomable love. But the reaction of the people who went out to see what had happened was this. They were frightened. So much for the still current human condition. Still in Luke, but this time in Luke's sequel called Acts, the girl with the Pythonic spirit of prediction who made a large profit for a syndicate from her fortune-telling gift because she was possessed by a demon, Acts 16, 16. Followed Paul and us, Luke is writing his journal, followed Paul and us, she cried out, these men are the slaves of the Most High God. Being a slave herself, she would understand. Who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, Hodon Soteria, Acts 16, 17. Even the demons recognized the Most High God and that Paul and his missionary team were preaching the way of salvation. Note the interconnection of Most High God with the way of salvation. Jesus is high priest to the Most High God as the way of salvation. This was the acknowledgement of the Most High God even by a demon-possessed slave girl. And this very precious to God young lady would be delivered from that possession through Paul's authoritative command in the name of Jesus Christ. Acts 16.18 Incidentally, this way of salvation is the king's highway. This way of peace in Luke 179, Romans 3.17, Isaiah 59.8, the way of salvation in Acts 16, 17, this new and living way paved in the blood of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 20, all speak of the highway of the king who said of himself, I am the way of peace and of salvation, the truth and the life. Jesus' way through the heavens is a blood trail that you follow and that I follow. And there is a transcendent heavenly literality that we have to yet explore even more in the future. That's not the only reference to God Most High in Acts. During his Holy Spirit-empowered swan song, Stephen quotes God himself saying this, The Most High God does not dwell in sanctuaries made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth my footstool. What sort of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? That's Acts 7, 48 and 49. The most high's domain is the heavens and the earth. His dominion to use another word, is universal. <clears throat> now, added to our barrage of biblical references is Jesus' parcel quotation of Psalm 82.6, Septuagint 81.6, in John 10.34-36. Jesus answered them, quote, Isn't it written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called those to whom the word of God came gods 
and the scripture can't be abolished. Do you say you are blaspheming to the one the Father set apart and sent into the world because I said I am the Son of God? Now consider the full quotation of Psalm 82.6, which is the Septuagint of 81.6. I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. There are those who are called gods, Elohim, even by God. And one who is called the Most High God, El Elyon. It is the Most High God who is the majesty, Greek megalosune. We're going to see that in Hebrews 8.1 as we've already seen it in Hebrews 1.3. Next to whom Jesus is enthroned. It is of this Most High God whose dominion and salvation extends infinitely beyond the borders of Israel, that Jesus is archpriest and thus the representative of all human beings and all of creation in all of their times. He is, as well, the unique representative of, quote, the God who saves, close quote, Psalm 68, 20, Septuagint 67, 21, to all of humankind, Titus 2, 11. God is none other than the God who saves. God Most High is none other than the God who saves all. It's surely very heartening to know that the Lord says to all of the members of the human race, in effect, all of you are sons of the Most High. This is true now because of the alteration of the human condition in Jesus Christ. This declaration will no doubt resound and be heard by all human beings from all eras and times when the alteration of the human condition occurs and all human beings become sons of the resurrection. Luke twenty thirty six. Can you picture the resurrection of all of humanity in all of its times before Jesus Christ who says to them, all of you, are sons of the Most High, the Most High God. The idea in all of these cases that we're mentioning above is as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 8, and this is worth bearing in mind, 1 Corinthians 8, 5, and 6 is a double alliterate, uh, allusion to the Shema Israel of Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 6. For even though there be those called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God. That's an allusion to the Shema Israel of Deuteronomy 6.4. The Father from whom we are or from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, another allusion to the Shema Israel, Jesus Christ, 
through whom are all things and in whom we exist. Let me say the short version. For even though there will be those called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as in fact there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and in whom we exist. Consider the connection between this allusion to the Shema Israel and 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, which also alludes to the Shema. For there is one God, that would be the Most High God, and one mediator, that would be the priest to the Most High God, between God and humanity, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for all. He gave his life as a ransom for the elect and left the reprobate to perdition. Wrong. He gave his life as a ransom for all. This one God is the most high God. And this one and only mediator is the man Christ Jesus, our great archpriest, now seated next to the most high God in the highest heaven. All of this testifies to the universality of the most high God, the God who saves Psalm 68:20 and 67:21 of the Septuagint who is the one true God and who saves not only Israel but all people of all nations Romans 11:25 to 26 His salvific dominion is over all and for all time and forever though the pagan so-called non-elect nations all had and still have their gods and their lords. The Most High God is exalted above them all. Melchizedek was a priest not to a god of a particular nation or city-state or of a particular element in nature or some god called the universe, but of the Most High God. He is therefore an apt prefiguration of the man Christ Jesus who is both a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek and the only mediator between all of humanity and the Most High God, who is the one God, the God who saves, though there are many others who are called gods who cannot save. Likewise, Jesus is uniquely as the only eternally begotten of the Father, the Son of the Most High, even though thanks to him, we are all sons of the Most High, of El Elyon. Consider what kind of rarely considered love this is, that we should even now be called children of God, same as sons of the Most High, and such we are. Even now, because of the permanent alteration, permanent alteration of our situation in Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at John, 1 John 3, 1, Romans 8, 14, 15, 16, 19, 23, Hebrews 2, 9, and 10, and 11, and Romans 9, 26. We can't even imagine what we shall be when that change of condition comes about. 
but we know. We know intuitively, and we know because of the testimony of the Holy Scriptures and the internal witness of the Holy Spirit in Romans 8.16 that when we inevitably see him, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is in the beatific and the beatifying vision. The vision is called beatific because it is beatifying, glorifying of those who see. First John 3, 2. And not only is he whom we will see in his full actuality, not only is he the universal archpriest and mediator between the one God, the most high God, and all of humanity, he is the one Lord in the Shema, which says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now we're going to round out and wind down this addendum, this two-part addendum between Hebrews 7.1 and 8.1, which begins the enlarged heart of our homily with praise to our great God. God is great. He is the most high God. He is Yahweh. He is Yeshua. He is the God who saves. Seems appropriate then to round off this two-part addendum with praise to our great God, the Most High. Consider Psalm 97, which is the Septuagint of 96.9. For you, Lord, are the Most High, exalted to the highest height over all the gods. Please note his universal dominion here. Jesus has indeed been exalted to the highest height to sit next to the eternal majesty, his majesty, God the Father, who is also our Father, Matthew 6, 9, John twenty seventeen. So in your prayer closet, which is your life in toto, we pray, our Father, we pray that his kingdom will come, that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Psalm seven seventeen, the scripture says, I will praise the Lord for his righteousness, which is his saving act, and sing psalms to the name of the Lord Most High. Curio tu hupsisto, the Lord Most High. Because the Most High God is the God of all, Jesus, as the archpriest to God Most High, is the universal archpriest whose significance is both universal and saving. For he always lives to make intercession for us, to save us all completely, to a universal theosis in which Emmanuel, God with us, is perfectly complemented by we with God. Thank you, Father. You are the Most High God, and you are our God. You are the God who saves, and you are our God. And thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the victory, a victory for which we hope 
in the change of the condition of all human beings to one of glory. To you belongs the glory, Father, and to you belongs the glory, Lord Jesus, and to you belongs the glory, Spirit of grace and truth. Amen.